Hello, and welcome to the LA Venture Podcast, where David Waxman and Minnie Ingersoll, partners and investors at 10110, we've watched Los Angeles grow from a sleepy tech backwater to a bustling mecca of startup opportunity. Through conversations with fellow investors and a few other special guests, we'll deliver an insider's view of the LA tech scene. We have one of our favorite investors on the show today, Britt Daneman. Britt is a badass, went to Wharton, captain of the varsity volleyball team at Penn, uh, worked at Bain Capital Credit, where she focused on middle market and distressed companies. She has really interesting experience with balance sheet restructurings, capital structure of companies that I hope we can get into some today. Currently, she's at Alpha Edison, an early stage venture capital fund here in L.A. We sometimes share an office and try to spend as much time as possible with Britt. So thank you for being here. But thank you for having me. I think what you guys are really doing with this podcast is awesome for the LA ecosystem and actually a really interesting um, recording of how the ecosystem will grow over the next few years. So Right. A little time capsule here. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background. Sure. So, um, you know, my background has, has really been on the investing side for most of my career. Um, you know, even internships in college were on the investing side. Um, and you know, one of the one of the things I've been able to experience is is different asset classes and how people think about different asset classes um, from an investment perspective. So, um, you know, worked for a private equity fund in in college, um, and then also uh, separately worked for a hedge fund, um, which is where um, I really sort of cut my teeth in the investing world. Um, I was in Boston working um, at the credit arm of Bain Capital, at the time called Sanctity Advisors, now called Bain Capital Credit, um, doing, as you mentioned, a lot of uh, both middle market and distressed investing. So um, learned a lot about a bunch of different industries and how companies succeed and fail and, and sort of the difference between a good company and a good capital structure and, and how that can really affect um, the growth of businesses. So, so tell me more, what does distressed actually mean? Because to me it means one thing, but that's probably not the term of art. Yeah. So, you know, the way we looked at it, um, you know, really had a lot to do with um, companies' capital structures. So um, it, it w there was either, you know, a specific um, issue relative to the company or a more secular issue where companies could no longer support their capital structure, which usually meant, you know, pay interest um, or service their loans. Um, so that there needed to be a restructuring, which usually meant, um, you know, everyone in the capital structure would, would figure out a way to shift ownership um, of the business. Um, and so often that meant, you know, private equity um, owners or sponsors or people who owned the equity, um, you know, taking a haircut to their position and, and often meant in our position as credit holders, you know, we would become partial owners or um, take the keys to a business um, and, and run it as private equity sponsors. I'd love to ask a little bit more about, about credit because it's coming up a lot these days in discussions with startups. Do you think, this is maybe a leading question, but do you think that the credit is part of the cause of the distress? Um, you know, it's 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 interesting, and I think that there are um, a lot of really important differences between established companies and early stage startups um, on when to use credit, um, and I think a lot of it goes to you know the risk that that these particular security holders are buying. And in later stage companies, there's like a very established business model, there's clear cash flows, and there's most importantly a, a path to paying down debt. 
Um, whereas in venture, you know, people people use debt in a very different way, and sometimes it's appropriate. But I think you know, generally, I I'm biased against it because um, you know I think what ends up happening is is the providers of the debt end up taking equity risk with an instrument that is is really not meant for that, and the returns they get are not meant for that. So there's sort of asymmetric risk return, um, which gets really tough, and and that's sort of a a broad statement around why I think it can be difficult. And I think specifically, you know, as Series A investors, you know, we do a lot of Series A and B investing. You know, when when I look at a company that has debt on the balance sheet, like I, I the first question is why. Um, and if there's a clear reason, whether it's around um, hardware financing or um, securitizing leases or something like that, I can get comfortable with that. But if it's just to you know raise more capital, you know, the question is, you know, why didn't you finance that with equity, which really is sort of the the risk profile where that should sit. Yeah, I'd love to talk about that more because it seems to me that almost every company we have comes to this crossroads where they're where they're offered and consider taking you know quote unquote venture debt. And and first of all. You know, there's so much written online about equity and the different kinds of equity that, that founders can take and be it convertible notes, which which are technically debt, but really equity instruments, you know, safe notes, whatever. They, there's a lot of info out there and there's very much less info about about venture debt. So maybe you could talk us through a little bit about the, the nuances because there's, you know, p- people are borrowing against future revenue sometimes sometimes they're they're financing things like hard assets um, and sometimes it's just sort of a, a line to draw on that people think of as runway extension mm-hmm. yeah and, and I think this is ends up being you know really specific to different types of companies and, and what you're using the money for I think you know as, as you compare it to later stage debt where the the need and the use case there is is usually fairly clear. Um, and the payback is is most importantly there's a path to payback. Um, here at the early stages, you know, as someone who sees a lot of these at the you know, like if a seed stage company takes a um, loan and and we are coming in to finance the Series A or B, um, it's not a good position to know that your capital is going in to repay a loan. Like you want your we want our capital to go help the company grow. Um, and so it becomes really hard, I think, to continue to raise money if there's not a specific reason why this company has taken debt. Okay, so if you're a founder and you've got your, you just got your Series A check from Alpha Edison, and that's that's usually when someone's just done a, done a financing, that's when they get lots of offers uh, for venture debt. You know, and, and say they're offering an extra three four million dollars to be available. What do you do? Do you just say no, or do you? What would be the conditions where you'd say, yeah, I'm going to open up this line even if I don't use it? Yeah, you know, I think it's I think it's a few things. I think one is the terms of the of the line or the loan. You know, oftentimes they're actually fairly restrictive and are not really as freeing as one would suggest the extra capital means. So I think that's really important. I think two um, is understanding, you know, the the when you have to pay it back. You know, a lot of people forget that you have to you have to pay this back. And so what that means for future financing um, and how that may hamper future financing needs. Can you tell me more? I'm just less familiar with the options that, that companies get. Like, what are the different ways the terms are structured in terms of warrants and covenants and preferences? Like, what are the big buckets to think about there? I actually don't know just all the options. I don't even really know the terminology very well. 
Yeah, you know, it, and again, it ends up being pretty specific to both the group. Um, it, you know, at the early stage, there are different groups that have different, um, you know, whether it's SBB or, or other groups that have different um, philosophies on what this should look like. Um, and, you know, as, it, you know, if, if I were a founder considering it, you know, I think terms are, terms are number one. One, I have to pay it back is number two. Three is, you know, the, the group that um, is offering it to me. Um, and, you know, having worked in, in, you know, distressed investing, where we actually invested the capital that um, was was kind of between bonds, like pretty low risk bonds and equity, what was called you know middle market or high yield debt. Um, we, you know, we were actually fairly comfortable operators. So um, you know, if something did happen and you know we needed to restructure the company, our group was was very comfortable becoming you know the owners and the equity and the controlling interest of the business. I think one sort of fundamental issue that exists in venture debt today is like that's not actually how a lot of these groups are set up. Um, and so you know when something happens, like knowing what your, how your partner will react, because you know as we know like you know startups have ups and downs and stuff's going to happen, and and knowing how your partner will your partner meaning your your credit provider will act in that case um, is I think really important to how you should think about them as coming on coming on to help you build this company before we move on to Alpha Edison which is I know what we're here to talk about today let me just ask a little bit more about um, about this whole experience because I don't really understand like you've been to bankruptcy court uh, what does that look like I'm just uh, sort of fly on the wall how does that happen? Where do you go? What does that mean? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. And it can mean different stuff, you know, and, and so much actually happens um, well before you are in sort of, you know, your court day or whatever that means. Like there's 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 a whole process around submitting bids for companies and, and actually being able to show up to a bankruptcy auction. Um, so most of the work actually happens well, well before um, sort of bankruptcy op- auction day. Um, but you know, you, you end up going through a process of submitting a bid. Um, there's a bunch of rules and regulations. You work with a lot of bankruptcy lawyers who are very, very special people. Um, and, um, you know, then, you know, the most, you know, recent one I went to before I, before I left was actually is all, what I'll use as an example is it's actually not like a court, right? You know, you don't go into like courthouse, you know, like I think we were at like a hotel um, and and different parties who are competing for for this auction are in different rooms. And, you know, it's a it's a it's a day where you um, sort of bid for this company. Um, and so there's like a few different. So like how many people would be bidding? Like were there like three or four different parties? You know, all- I, I assume there could be a lot, you know, at the time, you know, the one I'm thinking of, there were there were four different parties. Okay. Um, there were a hundred <laughs> or four. No. Um, and so, you know, people submit bids and then you have to sort of negotiate and, you know, in your specific rooms and um, there are people who come in and sort of manage your bids against one another. So it's a pretty stressful day. So how'd you make it from bankruptcy court to venture investing? That's a, it's a good question. It's an interesting journey, I'm sure. Um, sure. So um, had, you know, a, a truly amazing experience. Um in my time at Sankity, um, but, you know, realized my passion was really much more on, on the growth side. You know, I was, I found myself more excited about, you know, growing a pie rather than sort of dividing it. Um, and, um, so I, I left to go to business school, um, spent some time at HBS, uh, and along the way worked, um, with, 
you know, some early stage startups. Um, I worked with a, with an angel group in San Francisco um, who were early employees at, at Twitter and um, did their own investing. Um, and I worked, you know, I, I wanted to spend some time at, in an operational role too. So I spent some time um, at a company called Funding Circle, um, a fintech company up in SF. Um, and as I was leaving business school, you know, I, I um, needed to make a decision about, about what was next um, and was exploring, you know, whether or not to start something myself or, or go back to the investing world. And so um, I did both, <laughs> which is um, I joined a, a new fund. So it was sort of a startup in and of itself that um, also invests in startups. So, um, you know, I, I, I joined Alf Edison really at the formation of the fund three years ago. I remember just the few of us in that office we shared. You were there, David. It's funny. I think of Alpha Edison as sort of more like I think of it as uh, maybe it's because we're in these beautiful offices here in Westwood. Um, I sort of forget that it's it's in some ways a startup itself. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, you know, relative to um, more established funds, um, you could certainly call it that. And I think, you know, we still very much have that attitude as we continue to build and grow Alpha Edison as a, as a business, too. Um, and, you know, as you guys know, so much of venture ends up being, um, you know, there, there are so many network effects in venture, right? And so, you know, when we started investing, um, things look very different, you know, they looked very different then than they do now. And, and um, we've now invested in, you know, over 30 companies um, and have, you know, grown our network of, of entrepreneurs um, and investors and sort of the broader community around um, what we what we built and are continuing to grow. So what kind of things interest you, uh, you personally and you as a fund? Yeah, so maybe I'll give a little bit about the thesis of the fund and then dive into me personally. Um, so, um, you know, the, the focus of, of how we talk about Alpha Edison is, is really about new markets. So, a lot of people may tell you their fund focus is, you know, industry specific, whether it's, you know, healthcare or financial services or energy. Um, our our focus is generalist by design in that what we are are really looking to to um, invest in is companies that that create new markets, um, or maybe said differently, unlock demand that already exists um, and uh, define the market in a different way. So uh, usually that happens through sort of technology innovation and, and business model innovation. Um, and just to give you an example, so um, one, one that I think is pretty clean and people understand. So you didn't know that you wanted to ride around in somebody else's car 10 years ago. Um, in fact, you probably thought that strangers were dangerous and never would you get into the back of somebody's Honda Accord. Um, but you know, when ride sharing came along, it created the environment, the trust, the business model to, to actually make that happen. Um, and then um, not only did these companies compete within the taxi and limousine market, but they created this entirely new market that is, is much bigger than taxi and limousine. Um, and those are the types of companies we aim to work with and, and help grow. So in this example, these are companies that are innovating on the trust side of things. or So they're creating a new market. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's actually a theme that we... A theme. A th that we um, work with really deeply. So around the broad idea of new markets, you know, there's different ways to sort of approach that, right? It's 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 broad by design. And how how we go about, you know, tactically investing is is picking a few themes that um, 
that help us uncover what those markets may be. And, and one of them is this idea of trust that you know, we've talked about before um, and how you know, if a company can innovate around the idea of trust between a consumer and, a com and an enterprise, um, how that can actually create these new markets. So you know, there are plenty of examples of industries where trust has been fundamentally broken, violated, or maybe never even existed. And so just you know, by way of example, um, you know, one of our investments is an LA company called Aspiration. Um, they're a financial services business that is, that is working to redefine what trust really means between a consumer and their bank. Um, so they're one of these neobanks. Um, and by redefining that relationship, um, you know, imagine if, if you really did trust your bank, like how, how totally you could- I totally trust B of A. Wait, no, <laughs> actually I don't. How you, how you could, um, you as a customer could do more things with them. Um, and, and defining exactly what trust means is, is not totally clear. So you, in some ways, you, you probably do trust your bank, right? You trust them to not- I trust them not to lose the money, yeah. but I don't trust them not to take it in little increments when I'm not looking. Yeah, so there's, um, there's actually a bunch of behavioral research about this. And um, behavioral scientists define trust in, in three ways that I think is a really nice framework. One is around ability. So you, know, you trust your bank not to lose your money. Um, two is integrity, right? Do you do you trust your bank to, you know, make the right decision about fees? Do you trust the bank to, you know, do the right thing on behalf of their employees? Maybe. <laughs> well, I mean, I think part of that is like I don't. The banks inherently have an opaque business model, right? Exactly. And most con consumers, including myself, I don't really think about how do they make money. Are they really just, you know, making money off my deposits? Are they just really making more money off of fees i don't know you tell me i don't know how a bank yeah I so I probably should but i don't i don't <laughs> know how a bank makes most of its revenue um so it's mostly on um you know what's called interchange um and aum so when they hold money it's different than what they pay you as a um, deposit holder um so so you know the first was ability right maybe you trust them there integrity sounds like it's a no. <laughs> and the third is benevolence. And, and I think that's the hardest one, which is, you know, do, do you trust them to do the right thing on behalf of you? Um, and that sounds like definitely a no. <laughs> Probably not, no. Um, so, you know, what, what Aspiration has done is, is um, really, you know, work to earn that benevolence on, and therefore the trust of their consumers. And so one thing that they have done with their business model, so a lot of banks will charge fees. Um, and, you know, especially people who have low balances will charge even higher fees. So there's this like pretty backward scale of if you have, you know, a lot in your bank account, they charge you less fees, but if you have not that much, they charge you more. So, you know, when a consumer is, is actually more vulnerable, they charge them more fees, which is, is not a way to build a trusted relationship. Um, so Aspiration has turned that on its head and, and um, used some other research that shows one of, one of the best ways or the easiest ways or the fastest ways to earn someone's trust is to show trust in them. So what they do is, you know, instead of charging fees, um, they ask consumers to pay what they think is fair. So, um, you know, well, if, if, for example, if you're a customer, they will ask you, um, to, on a sliding scale to, to choose how much you'd like to pay for your account. And it can be zero and it could be $5 a month or it could be you know whatever you think is fair. Mm -hmm. um, and so in doing so, it, it brings you, the consumer, sort of into the product experience and, and shows that the bank trusts, you know, that Aspiration trusts you um, and therefore you know, you're more likely to, to continue to trust them.
So, so okay. So trust is one of your themes. Yes. But the broader thing is new markets. Correct. Okay. And, and so you guys go deep and I actually really, it's totally fascinating from my, like a research point of view to just learn, oh, trust is defined as ability, integrity, benevolence, let's say. I hadn't thought about it that way, but you guys are doing some amount of research, which, uh, you know, how are you guys structured? How do you, how do you identify like within trust as a theme? How do you go about, um, then identifying who you want to invest in? Yeah. So, you know, just to take that one, for example, right, there's, there's, um, you know, more research that shows that if you look at the 10 least trusted brands by millennials, four of them are banks, um, which is a lot, actually. Yeah. And so, if, you know, we, we, you know, look at measures like that, that, that show secularly how, how people think about trust or where they've been violated. Um, we also did a bunch of more fundamental research where um, we looked at, you know, um, you know, hundreds of trust violations that happened in the economy and, and got people to code them and, and figured out the impact of what happened um, when a company did violate um, the consumer's trust and learned some interesting things about, you know, you know and we basically applied that research to public companies and, and watched what happened in the stock market um, to understand when violations impacted valuations more um, and learned some interesting things. One was um, this idea that if your business model is, is fundamentally aligned with trust, um, it, the violations impact you more. Mm. If it's misaligned, for example, like Facebook has a, has an ads model. So consumers know that they're should know that their data is being sold, but um, you know, Facebook trust violations didn't actually impact valuations as dramatically as as somebody who had, um, you know, alignment of their business. But model. I'm an entrepreneur in LA, or I've got a business. Like, like you've now identified the 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 theme, the concept, what you want to invest in. Do you just cold call someone and like, hey? Yo, uh, <laughs> not just I trust you, but like, hey, you're a seed coming. You're a Series A because you're mostly a Series A. Series A and B a is and usually B. where we find ourselves. So if you're a Series A and B sweet spot investor, then like we've got a bunch of companies in our portfolio that we've seed funded. Uh, do you would you just proactively reach out to someone who, and say like and say, hey, you meet our investment thesis? And they may or may not be raising. They may or not like be interested in talking to you right now. Or do you still take some inbound? Both, right? You know, we we aim to spend more time on the outbound. Um, but you know, this is a fairly small community. People like inbound happens, and of course, we react to them. Um, but you know, by by keeping some focused time around these themes, we can go out and, and find companies we think are going to be um, really interesting over the next five or ten years. Which you know, as you think about sort of the power law of investing and and companies that you know really make a big impact into the world, like making sure that that we um, are you know staying away from some of of the noise that can exist and focus on ideas that we think will make a big impact over over the next decade. Are you guys? How LA focused are you? You know, so out of out of Fund One, um, I think we've all been surprised by the number of companies that have come out of LA, and pleasantly so. Yeah. Um, you know, we don't have an LA, you know, explicit focus, um, but love being here, and there are a lot of really wonderful companies that have been built here, and so, um, you know, about forty percent of our portfolio um, is our LA companies. Um, one of my questions I like to ask is like advice you like to give. Do you have advice you find yourself giving a lot? 
I think a lot of people um, will raise money too quickly. Mm. Um, and I find myself giving that advice um, fairly frequently to people who, you know, have ideas. And they, they think the first step is raising money rather than, you know, proving a market or understanding the problem. So I, I'm really interested to know if there's sort of common wisdom that you think is bad advice. Like I, I hear lots of advice coming from VCs generally, and there are a few things that sort of get under my skin, and I think that's uh, not the advice I'd give. Do you have any similar thoughts? I do, um, many of them. And I don't know if this is completely answering your question, but one thing that I find frustrating is um, the the pretty common thinking that um, you, know, you can sort of back into what your valuation is um, based on how much money you're raising. Um, just because I think those two things are fundamentally different. Like how, how much money you're raising actually defines, um, you know, the path you need to achieve certain milestones um, and doesn't necessarily tie to your valuation. So this idea that, you know, because you're raising, you know, X dollars, that equates to 20% of your business and therefore your valuation is Y. Like, I just find that so frustrating because um, it's not necessarily re reflective of what businesses are fundamentally worth. So, but shouldn't you, so which part of that is, is the thing that you should hold steady on? Is it the amount that you're raising to get to your next milestone? Is that the thing that you should focus on? Because I also thought that, well, VCs have a certain percent ownership, so think about giving away 20%. But then if I think that, then I'm also into my valuation. So where, <laughs> where's, where would you say I have to give on that? Yeah, I mean, the, the amount you need to reach milestones um, should be the part that holds steady, right? Because... Um, you know, and then you, you know you can raise at certain times if you want to, you know, raise before or after certain milestones. But um, you know, the valuation of your business is reflective of, of you know, margins and the industry and a bunch of other stuff. And so, just assuming that that it is because how much money you're raising, I think, is a, a too simple. Okay, so I need five million dollars. Mm -hmm. What's your what's your sweet spot check size? Um, so you know, we think about sort of first check somewhere between two and ten million dollars, and then we'll continue to. Great. Well, I want seven million, so it's perfect. I'm Great. right in your sweet spot. So I want seven million dollars, uh, and it's going to get me to hit my next amazing milestone. It's going to be fantastic. I'm going to raise a big Series B after this. So I, I, if you could give me seven million dollars, uh, but aren't you going to say that you want some percent ownership for that? Uh, we actually don't say that. Okay. Great. Um, so, you know, you know, if, if we're going to sort of lean in and lead, we want a, you know, material percentage. Um, but, you know, having a hard and fast milestone on how much we're going to own is, is it a simplified way, I think, to think about it. Um, you know, really what, what we're thinking about is, you know, what risk are we buying? Um, and then, you know, the $7 million, you know, de-risks certain things because you can achieve certain milestones. And so, you know, understanding the risk we're buying and how far that gets you is, is what we're trying to understand. And with that, you get a reflection on valuation. So you made the transition into venture. Yeah. And a lot of people want to know how one gets into venture. Uh, what advice do you give to people who want to get into venture? Don't do it. No. <laughs> <laughs> You're too new at this to say that. No, do it. It's a lot of fun. Um, um, so... I think you know my favorite part of this job is just sort of the the constant opportunity to learn stuff and um, you know I am like a very curious person and um, you know enjoy diving really deep about one industry and then moving on to something else and so that and you know between that and you know working with smart people every day I think it's um, a great experience you know my my transition into venture um, happened as I moved to LA. Um, and so, um, you know, when I, when I left business school, I, I moved back to 
LA, and I say back to LA because I spent a bunch of time here growing up. Um, and so uh, I, I was looking um, not necessarily to have a venture role. I, you know, I was looking to do investing and some sort of growth investing, and, and I was looking to do it with some of the smartest people I could. Um, and so, you know, as I, um, you know, was talking to different people along the way, um, met in one of my now partners, um, and, um, was, you know, really impressed by not only his clarity of thought, but also the thesis around the fund and, and how I thought it was differentiated from other funds that I talked to. Um, and so, you know, was, was part of, um, you know, the formation of the fund here. And so, um, that was about three years ago. So um, I I was kind of the first person who was crazy enough to say yes to these people without a lot of money raised or really a fund name, which tells you a bit about my risk profile at the time. Um, but um, that's how I landed at Alpha Edison. So you're high risk. Are there other things that you do outside <laughs> of work? Do you, do you, do you paraglide or um, bungee jump or do other crazy risk-taking things? I mean, with my physical safety, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. You have we're, a cool picture. I like the picture on your website of you behind a camera. So, um, no, where does your risk taking manifest elsewhere? I oh, suppose. I mean, so to the to the photo. So I do do a lot of photography. I don't know that that's necessarily risk taking, but I've got who you're trying to take a picture of. <laughs> I've gotten more more into you know drone photography recently. So that's you know a little oh, riskier. Cool. But I I don't paraglide, so I don't okay. have a good answer for that. It's good. I, I want I want to keep working near near you. The um, next question is David's, but I really like it. It's a, it's a little um, it's like a little cheesy to read, but I really like it. Which thanks. Is like, oh, yeah, <laughs> David wrote it. <laughs> it's like what quote inspires you, and how do you apply it? Which is sort of cheesy, but I I, I dig it as a question. I think you learn a lot from quotes, and um, you know, one that I think is that I've I've leaned into recently is one that one of actually our founders uses a lot. Um, I don't know that it's my favorite quote, but it's it's a recent one. So, um, and he talks about reserving the right uh, to get smarter, um, and and I think it's just an eloquent way to to embrace the continued learning that exists, um, and knowing that you're not always going to be right, and that's okay. Um, but if you sort of reserve this right to get smarter. Um, you can you can continue to grow and test and, and figure out what what's next. Oh, I like that. Uh, how about how do you get um, you know Have you read a good book recently? Uh, oh, I have. This okay. is my favorite book that I've been recommending to a lot of people, and, and actually also goes to an area of interest that um, I've been exploring on the investing side. It's called the Longevity Economy. It was written by um, a guy who runs the MIT Aging Lab. Um, and talks about you know what what happens as um, you know people get older and you know our our society meaning the U.S. is is aging um, and often how companies you know ignore people who are over fifty um, and yet most of the wealth of this country is tied into people who um, are over fifty and there's um, lots of research that shows people are you know, most happy in their 70s. Um, and yet, you know, most tech companies focus on people who are younger. And so I think there's lots of interesting investing opportunities um, that are that are nuggets of gold in this book. Mm. Uh, I never read books, but I did recently read Being Mortal by Atul Gawande, which is a great book also about aging, a little less focused on the economy, but I loved it. David, you got anything? No, I'm, I'm good. It's been so great to have you. And 
uh, I look forward to seeing you here in the office. <laughs> Thank you for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to LA Venture. If you enjoyed the show, please feel free to rate and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. It makes a big difference in helping others find the podcast. For more information on 10110 Ventures, please visit 10110.net.